Small Cap Institute presents CEO Corner, where we speak with CEOs who have successfully navigated the growth trajectory from microcap to small cap and beyond. We cover issues like financings, early revenue generation, the pitfalls of capital markets, working with a board of directors, strategic pivots, and just about every other key topic small cap leaders encounter. Today, I'm talking with Gary Ridge, CEO of WD40 Company. WD40 is the product in practically every garage you've ever set foot in. It's used in 80% of American households, but it's also sold in more than 176 countries. In other words, it's iconic. And even though the namesake product is also in the company name, it's not a one-product company. WD-40 is behind brands like Carpet Fresh, 2000 Flushes, and so many other cleaning and lubrication products. Gary, you've been with WD-40 for 31 years, and you've been CEO for about 22 years. Sales have quadrupled, and the company's market cap has grown from $250 million to $2.5 billion. Annual compounded growth rate of total shareholder return is 15%. So my first question, Gary, is how did we get here? And more specifically, how did you get to WD-40? Well, how we got here is pretty simple. It's all about the magnificent people that come to work every day at WD-40 Company. You know, our job is to make sure we create an environment where our tribe members wake up each day inspired to go to work, feel safe while they're here, learn something new, and go home at the end of the day fulfilled by the work that they do. A feeling that they've learned and and really contributed to something bigger than themselves. And this is the world that we envision and we envisioned some time ago. And if we create this world for our people, uh, we'll take care of our customers and that in turn will take care of our stakeholders and our shareholders. Great, let's dig in. Okay, so going back to that first year as CEO, you were promoted internally, you were an international vice president. Were you ready to be the CEO when you became the CEO, Gary? Certainly, I think that no, I wasn't ready. I guess I I was uh, ready in the way that I understood our brand and I understood where the opportunities were. And, and we really believed that we could take the blue and yellow can with a little red top to the world. Back then, most of our revenue was in the United States. So I... Um, Something became very clear to me, Amanda, and that was that micromanagement wasn't scalable. And if we were to build a business, we had to do it around a set of values that set people free. We needed to remove fear from the organization. A lot of what I'd read in a book called "What um, Everything You Need to Know You Learned in Kindergarten, which says, you know, treat people right and they'll do well. It's amazing. Aristotle said in 384 BC, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. So all of this was in my head. And I said, I need to go and and really sharpen my saw. So I went back to school soon after becoming the CEO. And I did a master's degree in leadership at the University of San Diego. And I had a clear objective. I, I wanted to learn what I didn't know and confirm what I thought I knew. And through that, I had and a lot of my beliefs um, were strengthened um, because of you know the interactions I had with great people like Ken Blanchard, who I eventually wrote a book with, who's a great friend of mine. Uh, I was on his board for ten years after after a period of time. But um, it was really about how do we how do we become great servant leaders and how do we unleash the power of our people? Because without people um, doing meaningful work, we'll just have average outcomes. Gary, I've heard you say before that you got very comfortable with saying, I don't know, to the board, to, to to anyone. Can you talk a little bit about why that was something you had to get comfortable with? Yeah, I, I've said that those three words are the three most powerful words I've ever learned in my life. And I had to get comfortable with it because it's uncomfortable admitting you don't know. I think our ego takes over and what became clear to me is when I got comfortable not knowing, I learned so much and so much came to me because um, as soon as you, you, know, you make out you know everything, you shut down all the opportunity to learn more and, and get different points of view. And, uh, um, and even today, you know, it, it even goes a little bit further when I think about it. I, I was reading a, a, a book a couple of weeks ago, 
And it was the follow-on from Who Moved My Cheese that was written by Spencer Johnson. Spencer passed away. And the new book is called Out of the Maze. And it talks about him and her and all of them. But it's also now, it's not only not knowing, but what do you believe? And, and he says in the book, a belief is a thought that you trust is true. Sometimes facts are just how you see things. So not only do I, I, I get comfortable with, I don't know, but even more today, I keep asking myself, why do I believe that? Because the world's changing so quickly. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to work with a board when you became CEO, first time CEO, and then saying to that board, I don't know when, you know, they're looking to you for answers? It was it's scary. I mean, I was a, I'd never been the CEO of a public company, obviously. And here I am with this group of people that a lot of them I knew or had got to know because I'd been with the company for a while. Um, but initially, I found it very difficult until I realized that, you know, they had the same objectives that we had, which was to build an enduring company over time. So it wasn't just, I don't know. It's like, I don't know, but I know I can find the answers. And thank you for making me aware of where that opportunity is. And then I got comfortable. And, you know, again, they don't have all the answers either. So if you think about, you know, the purpose of a board, it's it's getting that that collective brain trust together with all the diversity you can have and all the learning experiences you can have to come out with a better outcome than the one you went in with. So um, it was learning for me it, uh, that, that I you know, took a little time to get comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it seems like the company, like you said, the company took that little can. <laughs> I used to use that can to put into my rollerblade wheels when I was 12 years old, um, but, but taking it, taking it global. Um, can you talk about how you approached sort of this, this global growth challenge? Yeah, well, um, you know, we knew that WD-40 was a product that, you know, if you think about what our, what our purpose is or our why is, we exist to create positive, lasting memories, solving problems in factories, homes, and workshops of the world. Now, what was clear to us was these problems were in these factories around the world and we could bring the solution to them. So, you know, the first question we ask ourselves is, do you need me as a product? And we looked at the world and we asked that question and we force ranked the countries that needed us more than needed us less at that time. And then after we determined that, we said, okay, now, is there a business case for having them know us and be able to buy us? And we ran that analysis. And then we came up with the list of where we wanted to go first. And then it's a day by day, week by week, you know, month by month process of making the end user aware of our product and making it easy for them to buy. You know, I can give you an interesting example. China is a country that uh, we set up a subsidiary there about 12 years ago. We've been growing China at 15 to 25% a year, you know, over time. When I first went to China in the mid 80s, when I was um, looking after a lot of our uh, international business, in fact, based out of Sydney at that time, I went to China and I asked the question, do you need me of the market? And by observing, I, I observed that they didn't really need us yet because dirty diesel oil or a hammer or ignorance was solving the problem. So by being able to answer those questions, you could time when was the kind of roughly right time to um, go into a market. And uh, that helped us, you know, allocate our assets because we only have time, talent, treasure, and technology, and none of them are abundant. So you have to decide where to go first, second, and third. That's, that's really interesting. So one of the topics that comes up again and again in the small cap universe is revenues, whether it's selling a new product, growing sales, managing a sales force. Most small cap companies are in the business of figuring out how to sell a new product or service. Can you talk a little bit about the process that has worked for WD-40 or a sales commission structure or what advice, any advice you might give to companies struggling to find their first wins with a new product? Well, again, I think a lot of companies need to be sure that they they focus in. I often say that uh, 
Opportunities are abundant. Focus is a gift. In fact, Seth Godin just wrote a great book called This Is Marketing, where he talks about how you know we we really need to focus in on where our first opportunities are. So you, you can't be all things to all people all at once. And I think what happens is you get out of step between what you think you need to invest to generate revenues and what the revenues really are. And, and sometimes you cannot grow fast enough to be able to serve the huge market. So uh, Al Rees read a great book many years ago called The Future of Your Company Depends on It and It's Focus. So I think new companies need to say, okay, we know one day we can be the world. And, and WD-40 is the same. You know, we knew 21 years ago that we could be a $400 million company, but we couldn't get there overnight. So we had to pick our places prioritize and be comfortable to build our business step by step, day by day. So I want to, I saw that you wrote recently that it's become really trendy to talk about culture right now, but I know, you know, from your blog that you've been talking about this for a really long time, but (laughs) I I do want to spend some time talking about workplace culture. So can you explain, Gary, how you sort of married your global growth goals with, you know, your views about people and workplace culture. Yeah, I, again, it goes back to the, to the basic belief that um, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. So then how do you build an environment where um, people do go to work every day and feel like they're making a contribution to something bigger than themselves. They feel safe. They learn something new and go home happy. And, you know, I, I get appalled at, at the employee engagement of most companies in the world. You know, to think that today, on average, 67% of who go, people who go to work today are either disengaged or actively disengaged, which means they're not doing their best work and they're not happy. So what, is the, what are the elements of that that we felt were important? And you, you, as you may know, we, we've forever, for a long time, we've called ourselves a tribe, not a team. And a tribe to us is, is, not, is, is describing what are the behaviors of leadership that uh, are important. And the number one responsibility we have as a tribal leader here is to be a learner and a teacher. So all of our managers here are not called managers, they're called coaches. And we're here to do what we need to do to ensure that people are very clear of what they're accountable for and what we are accountable for to them. And then our job as a coach is to you know be in the locker room and be on the sideline and help everybody play their best game every game. And if you do that, people know that you're dedicated to helping them create a better them. So they put more into what they do. You build employee engagement. You know, our employee engagement is 93% globally. 99% of our people globally say they love to tell people they work at WD-40 company. And if you visit anywhere at any of our operations around the world, uh, you'll find people who are actually laughing and having fun, which is pretty cool to me because if they're laughing and having fun and doing worthwhile work, they're benefiting and our company is benefiting and then our shareholders are benefiting. I looked at Glassdoor just in anticipation of talking with you. And I mean, the reviews are all great place to work. Love working here. Exactly what you described. I mean, I I thought your article, The Accidental Soul Sucking CEO, (laughs) was really Uh a great, such such a clever way to get into, you know, some of these issues. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've observed at small cap companies, Gary, or with CEOs who you've spoken with or engaged with? You know, where do they kind of go astray in terms of culture and thinking about people and helping people understand what they're accountable for and, and what good work is? Well, number one is it's hard work. And, you know, you're starting with a small cap, you, 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 you're busy every day, but um, firstly, they shouldn't let their ego eat their empathy. Their empathy needs to eat their ego and they have to behave and feel comfortable around that. Secondly, they have to be, be really 
convinced or, or, or they have to really believe that it's all about people. You know, we need to involve our people. We need to be in servant leadership mode, enabling our people to do great things. One of the challenges they have is, you know, there's this short termism of Wall Street from time to time that says, you know, you're only as good as your last 90 days. It's a bit like, you know, one day the rooster, the next day the feather duster. And, and you know, you've got to have be able to put together a, a future plan that gives the investment community confidence around the fact that there are going to be some 90 days that are better than other 90 days. But overall, we're going to continue to build the company over time. And you've got to have a good strategic plan and you've got to be good at execution so that you can build that confidence. But, you know, we never give quarterly guidance. We give annual guidance and we update people as we go. But our communication with Wall Street has virtually been the same for as long as I can remember. Here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're going. Here's what the risks are. Here's what can get in our way. Here's what we're focusing on and don't follow us on 90 day intervals because if you do, you'll jump off the cliff. It's all about building the company over time. The end result of that, Amanda, is we've had a compounded annual growth rate of total shareholder return over a you know 15 year or plus period of 15%. Now, there are times when we've had things go better than we wanted and sometimes things haven't gone as well as we thought, but we've kept the course. Do you so those interactions that you've had with Wall Street? I mean, can you talk a little bit about how you communicate with investors? Uh, in the normal ways that everyone else does, you know, we we have our quarterly um, conversations around earnings. We do uh, roadshows, non-deal roadshows. We, um, you know, we have our information up on our websites of, you know, here's our corporate picture as we see it today. Uh, we talk to them uh, about um, our business. Uh, you know, and we've had some shareholders that have been with us for 15 to 17 years, which is pretty pretty remarkable when you think, and I mean big shareholders. And I, I said to one of them not long ago, why don't you sell us? And they said, come on, it's hard enough to find companies like you. Why would we sell you? And again, it's interesting, as you said, you know, it's the, the, the talk of the day now is all about culture. Well, okay. Um, at the end of the day, it's all about the people, and that's all we have. I do want to talk more about this. So I also have heard you talk in the past about silos at work. The more people know and the less they share, the more power they have. Can you talk mm. about sort of how to break down those silos and, and how you work to break those down at WD-40? Yeah, I, I often said when you know we look back, um, we, we wanted to turn silos of knowledge into fields of learning. And it was obvious to me early on that um, the more people hoarded information, the more power they had. And the reason they were hoarding information is because they were afraid um, and they wanted a defense to be able to protect them. So the first thing we said is, well, let's take the word failure out of our business. So we say we, we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments. So we really turned everything around into it's not about making a mistake. It's about how do we learn from the experiences we've had. And if we give people a safe zone by surrounding them with a clear set of values in the organization and, and say to them, here are our values. If you live our values every day and you make a decision or you implement something that doesn't particularly work as well as you think it is or would, we don't call that outcome a failure. We call it a learning moment as long as you share it openly. So what happened is we turned those silos and said, okay, now hoarding information is not going to benefit you anymore. Sharing information is where you're going to get applauded and rewarded. So as people started to do that, we'd applaud and reward them and, and, and show them how by doing that, they were helping the company and they're helping their other tribe members. So it's all about openness and freedom and taking away fear. You know, fear is one of the most disabling emotions we have. So why do we want to create fear in, a, in an organization? Let's be open and transparent and talk about things. As I often say, you know, candor in our organization is no lying, no faking, no hiding. Most people don't lie. A lot of people fake and hide. Why do they fake and hide? Because they're afraid. 
So can you talk a little bit, Gary, about, you know, how that influences sort of the company's approach to a, a performance review? Sure. Um, I wrote a book with Ken Blanchard called uh, Helping People Win at Work. Uh, and the whole basis of that is don't mark my paper, help help me get an A. And where most organizations fall down is they have these annual review things where, you know, it's th- the 364th day of the year and suddenly they have to give someone some feedback to be able to initiate some process to be able to reward someone. So they sit down and have a meeting and they say, well, here's what happened during the year and here's how you could have improved. And, you know, the person has the right to say, why didn't you tell me that 362 days ago and I and help and help me improve? So we threw the the normal review system out the door. And uh, now at WD40 Company, you only do one review a year. It's your own. It starts at the beginning of the year where you and your coach decide what are the key drivers that, that they you need to focus on. And more importantly, describing what does an A look like? So if an A walked in the room today, what would it look like? And then we have Apart from that, we have some specific goals that may be more short term. And the final part is we include our values and we talk about here are our values. This is what our values mean. And we have people every 90 days tell us how they've lived our values. So as I said, every 90 days then, or even more often, our coaches sit down with our people. They tell us how they're performing against what we agreed, the accountability. They're being held responsible for their own their own output. And our job as the coach is to help them get to where we agreed was really important. So we don't have annual reviews. We have ongoing leadership discussions. There is a formal part that at least every 90 days, people you know, sit down and have a, a formal, informal conversation to make sure that we're taking time to identify where we need to help our people. And that's when we've implemented that since, I think, 2008 or 2007. And maybe a little even before that. And it's been a key to us building the culture and the engagement we have because our people know that our leaders are dedicated to helping them be the very best they possibly can be. So then how does compensation fit into those leadership conversations or does it does it not? Well, um, we're a pay-for-performance organization, so the first thing we did is we threw out bonuses, because I hate the word bonuses, and we changed our compensation to what we call GRP, which is a growth reward program. And everybody in the company is rewarded if we continue to grow our EBITDA year by year. So, you know, without getting into the details of it, the basis is um, everybody in the company can earn a percentage of their base compensation in a in earned incentive payment, not a bonus. When I give them the check, I want to say, you earned this and you know how you earned it. And it's all based on growing EBITDA, which everybody has the opportunity to influence, whether they're a salesperson, whether they work in supply chain, or whether they're one of our tribe members that invest our treasure every day in uh, building our business or you know, maintaining our business. That's really interesting. I mean, so you you know you've mentioned tribe, and I loved reading about you know the tribe at WD forty and the maniac pledge. Can you talk a little bit about those two things? Yeah, well, you know, the one of the biggest desires we have as human beings is to belong, and you know, you and I have probably left a party, an organization, in an event, or even a relationship because we didn't feel like we belong. So why do people leave companies? Because they don't feel like they belong. Why? Because we don't treat them as if we care for them. So we said a tribe has attributes that will build belonging, like the number one attribute of our tribal leadership is learning and teaching. Then then comes our values are very important. Um, We're future focused. We're warriors we celebrate. So we all live these tribal behaviors that show people that they truly do belong. Um, you know, teams are very important within an organization, but a team is something you pa- play on situationally to kind of win a certain event. A tribe is enduring over time. So um, the tribe is, is very important. And then the Maniac Pledge is really the pledge to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be responsible. And it, and it says, I'm responsible for taking action, asking questions, getting answers, and making decisions. 
I won't wait for someone to tell me. If I need to know, I'm responsible for asking. I have no right to be offended that I didn't get this sooner. And if I'm doing something others should know about, I'm responsible for telling them. And we all take that pledge, which gives people permission to be able to ask questions. And also, it really empowers them and around communication and having a responsibility to be inclusive of those around them. Do you find it helps to break down those silos, making it okay for people to ask questions? Absolutely. It gives permission. Do you find that some CEOs think of these kinds of ideas about culture and employee engagement, that they they think of them as sort of soft or unimportant? Yeah, I think a lot of them, you know, think that the word love in business is a soft business, but it's really not. You know, caring for people, you know, leadership is a balance. It's a balance between being tough-minded and tender-hearted, and the genius is in the middle. And, you know, it's, there's been a lot of research, I think Harvard wrote up uh, some time ago, people who work in organizations where the leadership is too tough-minded feel vulnerable and at risk, where it's too tender-hearted, they feel vulnerable and at risk. So you've got to get in the middle. But to get in the middle, you've got to have a framework around it. You've got to have a people culture. You've got to have a clear set of values You've got to have a dedication to learning and a dedication to um, helping develop your people. Um, And if you have that confidence and you truly believe that it's all about the people and you do your best to serve them every day, because our job as a leader is to serve our people. You know, Simon Sinek says leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of the people in your charge. Do you find it personally challenging to to strike that balance between being tough-minded and tender-hearted? One of the hardest things I ever do. I mean, I can go either end of that real quickly. Um, so it's something that I need to be very, very aware of. Um, and uh, that's important to me. Um, I, I, I catch myself often going, wait a minute, where am I on this scale here? And, you know, I have to take a deep breath and I have to dwell and think and go, okay, I need to be deliberate around this. Gary, so can you talk, I'm sure it hasn't all been easy. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of the learning moments that you've had over the years? I mean, thinking back over two decades. Yeah, it goes back to the start, getting comfortable, my learning moment about getting comfortable with vulnerability. And the whole, the three words that I don't know is all about getting comfortable with being vulnerable. Um, the, The learning moment around, uh, understanding that you, you micromanagement isn't scalable by you know having courage and being brave enough to trust people, but also to you know to check and verify is, is really important. Uh, the learning moment around being able to talk about faking and hiding. You know, I, when I heard that in the first place, how do you create an environment where people their nat- where their natural behavior is, is not to fake and hide. I mean, that's around building trust. And again, this is this is this whole thing is simple, not easy, and time is not your friend. You know, leadership is a twenty-four hour a day, seven day a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year role. It's like being on on Broadway, uh, you know, with the bright lights on all the time, people are watching you and you just have, you have to be very aware and really know that whatever you do can impact others. And if you're not prepared as a leader to take on that responsibility, do yourself and others a favor. Don't try. Did you have sort of specific instances where you where you had to say to yourself, it's okay to say, I don't know? Or was it your own kind of reflection at the end of the day going, I didn't know that and I and I didn't feel comfortable saying that? Why didn't I? That that brought you to, sort of to, to, to the ability to be vulnerable? Can you sort of just talk about where it kind of really clicked in for you? Well, I can tell you where it became very clear to me, but I don't think it's a, a either or, it's a both and. I've had had both, but I'll tell you where it became very clear to me. I'd moved to the United States. It was 1995. I wasn't CEO yet. I was in a meeting 
and there was someone giving a presentation from an outside organization to a group of us in this meeting. And about 15 minutes into the meeting, I, I said, you know what, I have no clue what this person's talking about. I mean, I am so out of my water here. I don't, I don't know. They're using words I don't understand. You know, is it because I'm a dumb Aussie? You know, not long here. I don't know. So for some reason, I put up my hand. I said, look, I, I apologize. And I did it. I brought some humor into it. I said, I'm just here from Australia. So please, you know, forgive me, this dumb Aussie. But I have no clue what you're talking about. And everyone in the room went, <gasps> because they didn't know either. And no one knew. They were, they, they were all in this kind of space of, you know, we would have all left the meeting and wasted all that time. And I thought later, wow, wow, isn't that interesting? Because, and, 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 and I, I was brave, and I'll, say, I'll use the word brave, but I don't know if it was brave or just naive. I was just being naive to go, you know, I have no, I don't understand. Well, the meeting changed and, you know, what is it we don't understand? And we were able to put, you know, up on the whiteboard or the flip chart in those days, I guess. This is what you were saying. Can you please give us some clarity around this? The meeting completely changed and the outcome was one where we spent some positive time together. And it was like, my God, how often does that happen? and we don't do anything about it, and we waste our life, waste our time, waste other people's time, and don't have a good outcome. It was, was it those sorts of um, realizations that led you to get a master's degree when you were serving as CEO? Um, I, I didn't do it to get a master's degree. I did it to try and understand what I – to put – some some meat around what I thought I knew. You know, I wrote something the other day that that, that really hit me when I wrote it. I, I said, what I don't know is a vast variety of things. I'm probably always wrong and I'm probably always roughly right. And I thought, wow, I just got to get comfortable with that. Think about it. I'm probably wrong and roughly right. So where does that put you when you when you think of things that way? And when you can say... What I don't know is a vast variety of things, which is so true, but I'm probably wrong and I'm roughly right. How does that work with your, you know, I do want to talk about your interactions with the board. I mean, how did you get comfortable approaching the board with vulnerability, with being probably, <laughs> probably wrong, but roughly right? Um, how does that work? I think on reflection now, they don't expect us to be perfect. They're not. So I think over time, um, boards, and let me put on the words, leaders who know that you, you know vulnerability is important actually respect it. So you know, it's, it, there's a difference between being probably wrong and roughly right, and being you know um, irresponsible, right? But if you could say, you know what, yeah, I, I see that, I. Hmm. I maybe I need to think about that a bit more, or let me understand that better. You know, or, or you know, what don't I understand? Um, how do I? What am I not seeing? I often say that reasonable people who share the same values and absorb the same information will have a similar point of view. And in a board, when a board and leadership are out of sync. I, it's not because, well, you first have to ask, are we being reasonable and are we sharing the same values? And, and if we're not, then you're either the wrong leader or you've got the wrong board. Um, and then most times it's, we haven't absorbed the same information. Boards have 89 day memory loss. So, you know, they come into a board meeting and you talk about a lot of things and you, you, you know, you, you debate and you, you know, whatever. And then they go off and do busy stuff and you're in the business all the time. So when they come back 89 days later, the job we have as a CEO is to make sure we get them where we left them. And that's why, you know, early on we instigated, you know, mid-quarter board update calls where, you know, mid-quarter on a Friday, I'll have a call. It's not compulsory. And that's not a, a board meeting. It's like, here, I just want to talk about, you know, what do I like? What have I learned? What am I concerned about? And what am I doing about it? And most times I'll include things that we're sort of carrying through our business so that when they get to the next board meeting, they've still had that on their mind. They're still thinking about it. You can't over communicate with a board. 
the more you communicate with them, the more you give them, you know, what you have, um, you know, and, and bad news always is important. It goes there first. I love the scene out of Godfather, the Godfather movie, where the, the attorney gets up from the table after having a conversation with the Hollywood producer and says, I have to leave now because the Godfather always wants to hear bad news fast. You should always adapt that with a board. You know, <laughs> they all. <laughs> That's great. I was looking through the, the the bios of the directors on the board, and I saw you have three new directors who joined in 2016 and another in 2017, and you can just sort of see the global risk, global financial expertise, um, mm-hmm. just a lot of really sort of that global kind of strategic perspective mm-hmm. in risk. And I mean, just, just across the board, can you talk a little bit about um, the, how those insights, how you work them into your thought process? Yeah. Well, when we're looking at, you know, uh, how, how we want to make up our board, we, we look at what are the competencies and what is the experiences that we need in the boardroom to help us be better at what we do and be more aware. And being a global company, as you said, you know, we've got uh, um, a, a lady based out of uh, Melissa Klassen, who works for the global company Adidas based in Germany. Eric Eckhardt, who is a French national that spends a lot of his time in Europe. He speaks French, Chinese, worked in China for many years. You know, that's just two examples of, of um, people. You know, uh, we, one of the new board members we brought on from ResMed, Dave Pendarvis, who is, you know, the global, you know, if you will, head of legal for that company. So these are companies or people that have dealt in many countries around the world because that's where our future is. But we've been very fortunate. You know, we've got a great diversity of nationalities and genders on our board. We've always had uh, females on our board. We have two um, consistently. Um, so we're getting, you know, a, a, a good broad, uh, not only diversity through gender and race and experiences, but through, um, you know, where they're located in the world, which is so important. Can you talk about your relationship with um, Linda Lang, the board chair, who is also the former CEO of Jack in the Box? Yeah. You know, Linda and I have a, a great working relationship. Uh, I respect her for her, her leadership. She she has a, uh, a similar uh, view of, of development of people as I do, which makes it um, pretty, pretty handy. And um, but, uh, you know, Linda's a great chair. I've enjoyed um, working with her um, and um, I have a good relationship, in fact, with all of our board members. Uh, uh, it's a one of, of respect and um, we don't always agree, but that's OK. Um, you know, not agreeing is good. We, we can have good, healthy conversations, but always with respect and dignity. We here at Small Cap Institute from successful CEOs that the board CEO relationship is really critical to achieving growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sort of curious about whether the value of that relationship was always apparent to you or if it was something that you acquired over time. Well, when I first became CEO, again, I, I'd never been in the situation of what is a board. Now, remember too, I, I, been on this journey for a little while long a little while and and it's interesting how the role of board members changed over time you know I remember my early board meetings where you know you'd go in with a book that probably had 20 pages in it and maybe board members weren't that maybe their job specification wasn't as clear as it could have been where today the job spec is very clear um, you know there's no doubt that uh, in in the corporate world, that we've done a, a better job of defining um, the job of a board member, and they take it seriously. You know, our fortunately now it's digitised, but you know our board meetings are not just a three hour board meeting on a Tuesday afternoon. You know, our our committees work very hard. We have a finance committee, an audit committee, a compensation committee, um, a governance committee. A lot of work is done in the committees, so that when we get into the board meeting. We're actually talking about the business, which I think is really, really cool. And 
I open our leadership group up. One of the most powerful pieces of advice I can give anybody is open the leadership group up and, and let the board get as deep in the company as, you've, as, as is relevant or important to you. But, um, you know, we our board meetings always have many of our leaders in there listening to the board's point of view, sharing their experiences and their point of view so that everybody becomes more aware of what's important. But also having a very clear strategic path. You know, we have our strategic our strategic drivers. We've been publishing them for years. You know, they talk about where our growth is. And sometimes in a board meeting when, you know, someone will say, why don't we go off in this direction? The great thing is to be able to say, hang on a minute. Then what we need to do is not talk about going off in that direction. We need to go back and talk about are our strategic drivers the ones that are going to get us to where we want to go? Because board members wander off the page sometime. And unless you've got a, there's nothing, I often say there's nothing like the freedom of a tightly defined brief. And if that, if you, if you're very clear on, on what you're going to invest your time, talent, treasure, and technology on, and then you keep that focus, it's okay to challenge that, but it helps, it helps us stay in our lane, if you will. Now, if we want to get out of the lane, let's suspend the drive for a minute. And let's say, okay, we're going to suspend the drive and we're going to talk about whether we should change lanes. But let's not weave across the lanes um, and and run into things we don't want to run into. That's really interesting. I mean, do you find that that sort of apprehension about kind of, you know, going all over the place, all over the map is sort of why CEOs maybe are you know, not as open to insights from the board and then, you know, in turn don't really benefit from that relationship? Sure. I get, they get scared. You know, I've sat in, in our board meetings when, particularly as we've brought new board members on and we've got a very, you know, rigorous onboarding program, but, you know, a board member will say something and in my head, I think, where did that come from? How did they, how did they get there? And then immediately it's because what, what I'm reminded of is because they don't, that we have more information than they do. So, you know, I have to get to the board member, hey, can I help you understand why we are where we are? And once you understand why we are where we are, I would welcome you, welcome you, giving your guidance and your wisdom to why you think we should be going in a different direction. But let's have the history first. Does the board take the maniac pledge? Uh, Well, they're aware of it. I don't know if I've ever had them stand up and (laughs) <laughs> and take it, but they, have, they are very aware of it. Can you talk, Gary, about how, as the company grows globally, how you keep that WD-40 culture consistent and that feeling of being a part of something, being a part of a tribe, how you keep it going? Well, it's the number one thing we work on every day. Um, and, you know, we've got to act and be part of what is important. And so... You know, we all of our we're very fortunate that about 70 percent of our growth in people comes from internal in the company. Um, we have a thing called Leadership Lab where we're teaching leadership skills and, and uh, around the company all the time um, because of our uh, review system or our, you know, our um, don't mark my paper, help me get an A. A process where we're talking about it all the time. So it's 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 real to us. It's what we do every day. And then also, you know, what I've observed is as this culture has grown and the people within it love it, um, they really protect it as well. If they are aware of or they see opportunities to help other tribe members um, understand our culture better or even redirect them, um, they will also do that. So people really do, because they love being here, they protect it. I want to I, I want to also just spend a little bit more time. I mean, I know with your your blog, you know, it seems really directed at CEOs. And I'm just sort of curious about, you know, the feedback that you've gotten from there. Um, and are you are you coaching CEOs now, Gary? I'm not coaching any CEOs. Um, most of the coaching that I do is um, with students, actually, younger leaders. Uh, but my full-time job, I, I have an abundance of worthwhile work at WD-40. So with that and the teaching I do at USD and some of the speaking I do around the world, which is really focused on talking about the wonderful culture at WD-40. But, um, you know, I I don't know that I get honest feedback from some CEOs. I 
I'm asked more about it these days and I, I share with them, you know, what I think are the tools around building this. Uh, I, I get some believers. Um, I get others that don't believe and that's okay, I guess. What is what leads to the skepticism? Do you have any thought? Do you know? Do you understand why people are skeptical? Fear of short-term need of results. It's yeah, no, that's basically it. Do you find that that fear about the short-term results is what leads small cap companies to go astray, or where do you think companies go wrong? Um. I think the starting place is do they have a clearly defined purpose and why they exist? And then is there a business plan underneath that that they can project for a reasonable time into the future that will create an economic engine that supports the growth of the company and also um, rewards the shareholders? And then are they communicating that with their shareholders? You know, one of the things that I learned early on is you can have the wrong shareholders. And if you do, your life is going to be hell. You can have them because you invited them in. You can have them because your um, actions like uh, or your, your, your deliverables are not acceptable. That's when you get activists in. Or you, you can have them because you haven't clearly articulated um, what an A looks like as far as you're concerned in the business. So, you know, I've been in meetings where I've, I've said, I, you know, I don't think that you being one of our shareholders is going to be something that's going to be a pleasure for you or a pleasure for me because we are not aligned in what success looks like. That's really interesting. Um I mean, that, that there's that candor again. I mean, is that is that a productive conversation? That being that candid with with a shareholder. Why not? Why why our purpose in life is to make people happy. If we can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And if I can't make a shareholder happy, why do I want to hurt them? <laughs> I think that makes sense. Um, you know, I also wanted to ask you just a couple of more personal questions, Gary. You seem like a very open person. I saw you at an event this month and, you know, walked up to you and we said hello. Um, you know, there were other CEOs there that, that I would walk up to and that immediately were just sort of flanked by PR people and other people. And, you know, I wondered if you sort of very purposefully um, try to remain normal, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a basic guy bumbling my way down the life, the road of life, bumping into stuff. And uh, you know, I, a long time ago, I guess, or I don't even know when. I growing up in Australia was fun, and uh, you know, we we are a pretty down to earth sort of people. Um, you know, if you treat people with respect and dignity, my say please and thank you, pick up after yourself, uh, be candid but caring at the same time. Um, I think it's fine. I, funnily enough, I'm truly an introvert. Um, uh, a lot of people, I, you know, I, I, I can act as an extrovert, but I, I'm truly an introvert. I, I don't go to galas. I don't, you know, I don't like big functions. I don't like places where people are, are playing to a tune that I, I'm not part of. I, I don't take myself too seriously. You know, I am who I am. And I also wanted to ask sort of, you know, things that you do that, or, or whether there's anything, you know, you just mentioned being an introvert, which is, which is really surprising, but are there other things that would surprise people to know about you or other sort of interests that you have outside of WD-40 that keep you um, grounded and keep you sort of authentic to who you are? Um, I love um, I, the work that I do with the universities where I get to uh, go and share what I call the dog bites on my butter with students, um, either, you know, grad students or undergrads. Um, I've been doing that at San Diego State University for 15 or 16 years. I go to UCSD. I, I'm an adjunct professor at USD where I teach in the Masters of Science and Executive Leadership. I do some work with UPenn. 
Um, I've been able to build up relationships with people like Marshall Goldsmith, Ken Blanchard, Simon Sinek, where I'm really curious about the things they're talking about and what they do. You know, I travel a lot because of my job. I, I do about 200 plus thousand air miles a year with my tribe. So um, my wife and I get to see the world, which is exciting. Um, I, I do like, uh, I like being in cultures uh, and observing, you know, behavior and you know, try, I, trying to understand you know, why people are what they are. So I'm, 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 I'm naturally very curious, um, which I find fun. Uh, I don't play golf very well, so that's okay. Love my, my family and my two, my two grand boys are my favorite fellas. So they're seven and four or five nearly, so I enjoy them. And um, yeah, life is good. That's good. Pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Gary, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, thanks so much for talking with Small Cap Institute Presents. For everyone listening, to learn more about Gary's approach to being a CEO, you can read his blog at thelearningmoment.net. Um, he wrote an article recently about the accidental soul-sucking CEO. It's basically a list of what not to do <laughs> if you want employees to be engaged. Um, and for more about WD40, you can visit www.wd40company.com. Um, Gary, thank you so much. I, it's so great to get to spend this time on the phone with you. I was really so excited to get to talk with you. Um, I don't know if you remember, but you were the first CEO I spoke with when I first started covering publicly traded companies. And just looking back at those notes that I took in that conversation in anticipation of just getting ready to do this interview today, I was like, oh my God, I asked such bananas questions and you were so kind. <laughs> <laughs> you were so sweet about it and you just took them all so seriously and, you know, you really didn't make me feel dumb. So I <laughs> thank you, you know, eight years later for that. I, I really appreciate it. And so it's great to, to, to talk with you again about, about all these things. And I, and I love your blog. I love your LinkedIn all the articles that you post. So um, it's always so fun to read those. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you do to help people step into the best version of their personal self, because, you know, it's important that we try and create these organizations where people do go to work every day. They do feel like they're making a contribution to something bigger than themselves. They do learn something new. They do feel safe and they go home happy because happy families build happy communities and happy communities will build a happy world. And by God, we need a happy world. So you're making a difference, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Small Cap Institute is the first and only comprehensive content library and collaborative forum specifically for small cap executives and board members. For more information, visit us at smallcapinstitute.com.